Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Creative Control with Bish Khan. Hey there, how you doing? On this episode, a conversation with Will Oldham, a.k.a. Bonnie Prince Billy, about his project with Don McCarthy, the Everly Brothers. We talk about music festivals, their merits, positives, negatives, that, that kind of thing, and much more. So, let's talk to Will Oldham together. Well, I'll talk to him, you listen. How about that? Starting now. This week's episode is brought to you by the 25th anniversary edition of the Eden Mills Writers Festival, which takes place September 13th to 15th in the beautiful village of Eden Mills, just 10 minutes outside of Guelph, Ontario. On Friday, September 13th, there's the Black Tie and Tales event featuring Arthur Black and James Gordon. That takes place at the Eden Mills Community Hall at 8 p.m. On Saturday, September 14th, this is very exciting, a Food for Thought event featuring noted author Michael Pollan, and Sarah Elton, hosted by Dr. Evan Fraser. This takes place at Rosansky Hall at the University of Guelph at 2 p.m. in the afternoon. On Sunday, September 15th, the annual gathering of authors in the village of Eden Mills. There's quite a lineup there. Tickets are available now, and there are a limited number of weekend passes. And you can get more information at EdenMillsWritersFestival.ca. Stay tuned. There might be some major music announcements to come as well. Uh, pertaining to the festival. But again, for more info, visit EdenMillsWritersFestival.ca. Will Oldham, otherwise known as Bonnie Prince Billy, is a native of Louisville, Kentucky, and remains one of the most daring and respected American artists working today. Oldham has been collaborating quite a bit lately with Don McCarthy of the band Fawn Fables, and this past February they released an LP called What the Brothers Sang, a collection of songs originally recorded by the Everly Brothers. McCarthy and Billy are touring throughout Europe and North America this summer, including stops at the Dawson City Music Festival and Hillside Festival right here in Guelph. Here now to tell us more about this and possibly even other things is Will Oldham. Good day, Will. How are you? Like I say, I'm getting by. How are you doing? I'm well, I'm well. Uh, you're, you're only getting by. Is everything okay? Is everything okay? Um... <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm looking forward to 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 getting back to singing uh, in front of people. That's for sure. Okay, good. Well, that's good. We I know we are all looking forward to that as well. Uh, I know that you and Don have been working together for many years now. Can you maybe just tell us a little bit about how this relationship began? It began. Um, I never. Dawn McCarthy, her music with uh, Fawn Fables uh, seemed to exist in realms that I was definitely not uh, aware of. And many years ago, I think we, we were doing a, a trip through the Pacific Northwest of the United States, and we were camping out every night after the shows, and we... But we played in Seattle, and there weren't a lot of places to camp out, so someone just let us pitch tents in their backyard, and we were sitting inside having a nightcap just before finally turning in. 
and this guy, our host, started playing this music. Um, I'd never, it was like that kind of music where you know, I'd never heard anything like it before, and it's but but the kind of music where it, like you hear certain things when you're a kid, and they open up parts of your brain that didn't you know were closed off before, and then as an adult you go back to that music or whatever it is, and and it's a lot weaker than your memory has allowed it, you know, uh, your memory has, has, has continued to sort of carry the strength of that initial listening. And so there was a lot of music that was maternal and frightening and challenging and natural and comforting that my brain knew existed, but I didn't, couldn't find it anymore in the world. So I thought, oh, it just doesn't exist. And then all of a sudden here it was like this kind of music that, that existed in parts of my brain that I assumed would just be rooms I would have to close off forever. Um, and it was, you know, so what is this? It's fawn fables. Okay. So I got that record, which was mother twilight and listened to it, uh, a lot, and then thought, well, I'll, I'm going to reach out to uh, Fun Fables and see if they might be interested in playing some shows together. So you know, so that I could get closer to the source and try to experience it more, experience it deeper, learn more about it, and just basically, it was whenever I would listen to it, it would, it, it just was this music that I wanted. To, to be more of a part of my life. Uh, and so Dawn came out by herself the following year and we played some shows together. We started to sing together every once in a while at those shows. Specifically, we would sing Everly Brothers songs because they're ingrained in our memories and they're good, you know, they're good vehicles for two voices to sing off of each other. Right. And, and then, uh, and then maybe couple of years later I was working on a set of songs and and thought you know I wanted to try to delve deeper into how and why Dawn approaches life and music and so I asked if she would want to work on the letting go songs and she agreed so we we dug into that and um that was uh it, like there were a couple of moments in that process, specifically like the, the two big mo- <clears throat> moments that I remember as the most powerful were one was I had sent her handheld cassette recordings of myself playing all the songs. And a month or two later, she sent me back these four track notes uh, that we've since released as Y notes, uh, W A I notes. Uh, but when I just when when I started listening to that, when it just the first track came on, which I think was maybe the song called "Then the Letting Go," uh, I was just, I you know, it was you know, it felt like I was you know standing on Mount Olympus or something like that, you know, like I was I was in in this place of dreams, and then the other point was after we had recorded the the record and mixed it and released it and. Uh, we were doing a tour. It was, it was, I think it was myself and I think, I think it was myself and Emmett Kelly and, uh, I'm trying to remember who all was in that band. We were, we were out on the West coast. We were at the Henry Miller library in Big Sur and our trip was coinciding with a Fawn Fables tour and we hadn't played any of these songs live. And, uh, said, oh, well, let's let's play together. And uh, I think Dawn and her husband Nils, who's sort of the other core creative force in Fawn Fables, um, they drove up kind of at the last, I think we were maybe even on stage when they got there. Hmm. And we were outside under the trees and we started playing the song Y, W-A-I, and, uh, and, Dawn, and Dawn, you know, was singing, they're singing with me and I just felt like it was one of those moments where 
it's like this you know this is the this is the this is the greatest you know kind of just feeling like this is the ultimate confluence of of things that I care about and 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 work and the things that I feel and th- work that it, things that I've worked towards um but she's a you know she's now she's a mother of two and there's one on the way and uh lives out west and I live in Kentucky so we don't get to see each other play with each other all that much um we started talking though a little over a year ago just we were communicating and she just said that she had picked up a Everly Brothers cassette and was had it in her truck when they were driving around with the kids and the kids were very fond of it and she just offhandedly um mentioned she said we should sing more of these songs sometime and and I was just you know as I am most days just sort of like a you know a tight coiled spring and I just bounced right then and and was like are you serious okay and then and and it was just kind of uh the train left the station at that point and we started scheming and plotting and then recording there's obviously a very deep and rich history there between you two and i didn't i didn't i guess i didn't recognize that i knew it stemmed you know uh, the, the, the stem it spans the working uh, your discography i know that you've worked together quite a bit but uh, uh-huh. that, that's great. I appreciate the insight there. Can you maybe talk about, and I guess from what you've said, I understand where the affinity for the Everly Brothers uh, came from and maybe conceptually why this record came about. Can you maybe just talk about uh, the song selection here? Because in the promotional video for this record, there's notes, uh, there, there's scenes rather where you're scribbling notes, maybe even doing little lyric rewrites, and she's, she, you know, she's perked up by that as well. Can you maybe talk about uh-huh. talk about the experience of making this record and and, and how it came about? Yeah, I'm not, there, there was definitely there were like I think there were two lyric rewrites, and that was just simply to you know I think there were times when we left gender alone in the lyrics, and there were a couple times where we uh, messed with gender were gendered words I like in just what I was looking for today the first line is hey little woman you're just what I was looking for today and and since we wanted to sing it together that one we decided to change so we changed it to hey little wombat <laughs> hey little wombat you're just what I was looking for so that one and then we changed one in the poems prayers and promises which was uh me and my old lady sit and pass the pipe around and sometimes I feel like there's a lot of power in a singer of one gender you know using obviously opposite or if you if you if you believe in the duality of genders opposite uh singing the opposite gender stance but sometimes sometimes it's just you know it doesn't have any real point to it so we just changed those two the song selection so dawn dawn like most people who know the Everly Brothers' work knew the hits. And I had gone much deeper over the years into their recordings. And there were, there's a significant number of their songs that get into some places that I had a sense uh, Dawn would really appreciate and be excited and and compelled by so that was another like when she mentioned that i don't think you know i think she was just thinking oh it would be great to sing together again and be great these songs are so great but my mind was already like oh you don't even know what you're saying you know wait until (laughs) i play you these some of these other songs so i started sending her everly brothers songs that i figured would in a positive way, freak her out, and and they did. Um, and it was and and but but then trying to think of kind of what could be called natural fits, either because they were songs that we'd sang together before, like uh, "So Sad" or "Devoted to You," or because they were like uh, "My Little Yellow Bird" or "Empty Boxes." Uh, just things that I, I knew that, she, or I hoped, 
that both as a singer and as an appreciator of songs and song structure and lyrics that, that she would take to. And then some things, just thinking like just what I was looking for today or Walking the Dog or Lovey Craves, it, that having spent time with her and knowing how much fun she likes to have, you know, and fun she likes to have with singing and thinking that let's see if we can, uh, let's see if we can have fun with this as well. Because we were, you know, I was thinking even right away, I was thinking, oh, this is going to be really nice to take around and and to sing to people because we can have fun with it, you know, and we can now, we cannot worry about the life of the song because the songs already have these you know long lives before we came upon them and sang them and and some of them are just designed to you know a lot of them are written to be potentially to be big hits so they're like written with this idea of tapping into what people want you know from a hit song which is positivity and energy and all these things right. most of them weren't hit songs but but the songwriters, you know, they're all amazing songwriters. And they knew what they were doing, and the reason they weren't hit songs was, who knows wh- why they weren't hit songs. But that, but we get to sing these, you know, neither of us are, are in the business of singing hit songs or songs that are even designed to be hit songs or have that kind of, like, um, positive life force, or, you know, positive life force that's sort of synthetic positive life force that a constructed hit song is is designed to have so here we are we know we get to we're like moonlighting uh and we can take it seriously as as singers and performers and we can throw our discipline into just the rehearsal and the touring and and getting it done but but then take advantage of the joyride of of how these songs were built yeah, I think when a band like the Everly Brothers, who, you know, they loom very large in the culture, but at the same time, they're easily taken for granted. I mean, as you mentioned, uh, some of us know their their great hit songs. By delving deep into their catalog a little bit deeper uh, at songs that you say were intended to be hits, but maybe weren't for whatever reason, you're kind of reintro- mm-hmm. you're reintroducing them, uh, the, the, the band, to a whole new audience. Like, for me, I, I kind of know them, but this record has compelled me to try to seek out all of these songs, you know what I mean? And so you're Yeah, and it and I feel good about that because it's I think anybody who is similarly compelled will be completely rewarded, you know? Like I I feel you know, we we're giving this little 15 16 songs that we recorded uh but but I think that there's so you know, I I found over the years that there's so much great to discover among their recordings that it feels really good that, you know, to maybe give clues to people of, of, you know, when, especially when people so often are say like, I don't know what, you know, I don't, I can't, I haven't heard any good music recently. And it's just like, what you, what? <laughs> like, are you insane? Are there, are there key yeah. LPs by this, by, by the Everly brothers that you would recommend? Hmm. I don't, I don't know if I would say that because they were artists who really came up in the kind of, you know, in the late 50s and 60s mindset of single, it's that singles, it's thinking about singles. So there are records that have a few total, you know, total powerhouse great songs on them, but it wasn't like, you know, I think a lot of people like their record Roots because it's one of the most sort of, it's a concept record kind of, and and maybe people cling to that. I still, on that record, I still feel like I'd rather make my own mixtape of Everly Brothers songs than, you know, there's certain records of theirs that I do like to listen to, but Often as not, it's weird compilations. Like there was one called Home Again that RCA put out, I think, in the early 80s. And that turned me on to certain recordings of theirs that I'd never heard before. Mm -hmm. And there's another one, I think Warner Brothers might have put out a double record 
set that's kind of just a strange there's some hits and some interesting choices it's a it's a pink double record gatefold and i think i've liked that better than any other specific everly brothers record usually i'll listen to an everly brothers record i'll find the two to six songs that i completely love and i'll you know back in the day i would put them on a cassette these days i might put it on a whatever some sort of playlist or something like that hmm. but no i mean there's it's it's amazing to it, uh, another one was uh ace record the british record label put out these two warner brothers singles uh compilations so it was volume one and two and those are totally amazing and those were just i don't know if those all of those songs didn't come out on records they just came out on singles oh i see right so, and I love those, I mean, that, that, I think it was volume two that I just listened to over and over and over and over and over again. So many great songs on there. Um, yeah. So weirdly, yeah, there's not a, I wouldn't, you know, wouldn't necessarily, I would say every record is going to have something on it. Okay. No, that's fair. And in a sense, I suppose uh, you and Don have curated your own mixtape with your record. Maybe it's worth uh, <laughs> trying to create a mirror yeah. <laughs> a mirror of yeah. your, your record and making my own Everly Brothers mixtape or something. Yeah, I think, I, I think um, Domino, who licenses our records over in Europe, they, they, I think they've made maybe online some sort of a uh, some sort of an online jukebox or something where they've assembled either links to or something to all of the original Everly recordings. They wanted to do it when that record was released. Both Don and I said, well, let's not, you know, this is supposed to be a record. It's not supposed to, you know, yeah. we want, we're, we're identifying the source, but it's supposed to be its own thing first. But at a certain point, it is nice to encourage people to check out yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Have you had uh, any any response from the Everly Brothers camp in any way? <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> a positive response, or <laughs> I don't know. No, there's been no no response. There was a uh, there's been no response. I I, I was um, even during the recording of it because uh, we recorded in Nashville with with um, the great. Uh, David Ferguson, who who had spent, who, who knew Don casually, or, you know, he was, he, they were acquaintances who would uh, revel together um, in in maybe the early '80s or mid '80s or something like that, and mm-hmm. and I knew where Don lived because his his name was in the musicians' union book, and you know, I, I throughout the session I was just like, you know, trying to get to see if he could figure out a way to get Don over to to listen, to sing something, anything. But the closest we got, we got we got a his I think his his wife called us back once and said, "Oh, he's not he can't make it out or something like that." Oh, okay. So you, you did but, um, you did try. That's kind of interesting. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. And then uh and then I also I had this idea uh where I thought it would be interesting, you know, for my own um, edification as well to, uh, I had this idea that I wanted to talk to uh, this guy named Terry Slater, who's a British guy who um, played with the Everly Brothers for a number of years and has a lot of songwriting credits uh, and a lot of key songwriting credits on their songs. And I've learned that songwriting credits on Everly Brothers songs in that period are, can be strange because they're, they had complex relationships with maybe ex-wives and publishers. So they might, you know, I've heard that some Terry Slater songs were actually written by one or the other Everly's and they're, and they, and Don Everly used the pen name, for one song that we recorded, but I wanted to talk to Terry Slater because he was there during what I think is the craziest, deepest, wildest, most interesting Everly Brothers period. And he went on to, like you can find him online listed as the fourth member of AHA because he was apparently their manager oh. um, 
and like stayed in the music business and maybe is still in the music business, but I've, you know, everybody I could think of who could potentially find a way to connect with Terry Slater couldn't ultimately connect to Terry Slater. And there was one time I was at a barbecue at Ferg's house and I was talking to Sweeney. I think we were maybe in line together and talking about my pursuit of Terry Slater and, and a guy in line for, in the chow line with me uh, and his wife, they introduced themselves as, as the Eddies, Dwayne Eddie. Hmm. And he's like, Oh, I, you know, I hang out with Phil Everly and, and Terry Slater frequently. They're good friends. And I was, I was like, well, we've got to, please help me, help me. And, uh, but I never heard from them again. So, oh. and, and, and then, and then Don McCarthy made this incredible, uh, drawing, uh, representation of the Everlays, which is included in the artwork. And we had wanted to put it on the, uh, back cover of the record, but we figured legally we should clear that with somebody. Mm-hmm. And I think we approached, so Phil's son, runs a guitar string company out in California. So we tried to contact Phil through that just to get clearance. And Phil came back saying that he wasn't comfortable with having that image, which makes sense because to the casual buyer, they might see it, see the pictures of the Everly, see the song titles and buy it thinking it was an Everly brothers record. And, sure, and sure, I agree. Sure. I wouldn't want to, I wouldn't want anyone to buy a record thinking that it was that. So, hmm. so we just stuck it on the end. That's the closest we've gotten to any direct contact was we got a message from Phil through his son saying we could not use that that, that drawing. And and you heard from Don's wife as well. And Don's wife, yeah, that was early that was early on. Right. And it's it's it is completely unknown to me whether either Don or Phil knows that this record exists. To, uh, you know, in, in reality. Right. They they it sounds like they might have an inkling based on all of the inquiries that have been made. So maybe maybe they're just I have a feeling that Phil might but but I think it, from everything that I've heard, it's very possible that Don doesn't. Okay. <laughs> because of his relationship to the outside world. You mentioned uh, Terry Slater and Aha. You know, for what is I don't. Are you familiar with Aha's take on uh, Crying in the Rain? No, but I'm sure I, I would. I, or I would. You know, I would bet a hundred bucks that 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 was brought about through their relationship with Terry Slater. It's a beautiful, beautiful version of the song. You know, this was sort of well after their kind of you know take on me heyday or whatever but they do that they it was actually they released it as a single it's got a beautiful video and uh i oh, wow. just i that song i didn't even i was a kid probably when it came out and uh i don't know that just resonated with me really hugely and i remember learning that it was i believe hopefully i'm right that it was an everly brothers cover yeah yeah i mean that was one of as as a kid as as maybe like a i don't even know eight or nine year old that was one of my very very first very very favorite Everly Brothers songs you know yeah. so I had this you know I always thought you know it just tugged at my heartstrings totally it just it, and I sang it all the time it was yeah it was amazing well Will I yeah. appreciate all the insight about the this project because that's uh, I just didn't know any of this these things so thanks <laughs> uh, I want to ask you about festivals in a moment but before I do uh, are you working on any new music or projects now that you want to share at this point um Well, Emmett and I, Emmett and I recorded a couple songs for this. Uh, uh, there was an Australian surf movie called uh, "Morning of the Earth." That's sort of a classic in the surf movie history, and uh, a, a, a great surfer and surf filmmaker and musician named Andrew Kidman has been approached to try to make something uh, like a like a something it's like a you know like a sequel like a follow-up like a re-envisioning uh okay. of morning of the earth and it's such a it's such a unique piece in and of itself and that andrew has so much reverence for that he's being very careful about what it is he's making but he did one one of the big things about it was that it was full of interesting music that people had never heard before and so Andrew asked us to cover one of the original songs and then also to write a new song. So we did that and we're trying to figure out because it, it, there's no way to tell how long Andrew's going to take to make his, to finish his movie. So we thought maybe we'd try to put out a, 
a seven inch or something like that. And then, uh, yeah, then I have a, a new group of songs that, uh, it should, should be a record soon. Yeah. <laughs> I understand your hesitance in wanting to talk about anything while it's still in progress, but yeah. I, I appreciate it. You know, I know you're always busy. So, uh, and, and, you know, as a fan, you just want to know what you're up to. That's all. Yeah. Not trying to pry. But I feel like it's, <laughs> yeah, I feel I feel like it's uh it feels something like it feels like a a period of uh you know the the music business is very strange uh right now. And and then as well I'm getting I'm getting older. Uh-huh. So it's it's looking around and I think maybe I w- I think I'm hoping to spend the next couple of years uh I don't know like uh digging deeper in some kind of way rather than rather than wider if that makes any sense deeper not wider can you what's the distinction there um like almost like uh i know that it would be uh a quickly uh tapped vein to to uh you know they only tour like five blocks around my house, but that's kind of what I'm talking about. Oh, I see. Okay. Like to, um, to rather, you know, like someone has just said, approached, said, would you like to, you know, what if I put together a tour where you played a few shows in Korea, Thailand, Kuala Lumpur, and where 10 years ago I might have immediately just said yes and then figured out the details as, as they unfolded. Now I think like, what about Bowling Green, Kentucky, or what about Paducah, Kentucky, or you know something like that? Like, try to kind of make stronger what we have, I guess, rather than trying to create new new channels or something. You're, you'd prefer to be rooted at home more right now. I wouldn't prefer to be rooted because uh, I am rooted at home, but it, but I guess it, um, but just about but strengthening. Like I know that, you know, we're you know to to help help you bridge the the, the conversation. You now we're going to go to to Dawson City, which is pretty geographically far away. Yeah, and even Australia, Australia. You know, we were we went to Australia. We've been to Australia many times, and and it's great. The audiences are great. It's a great experience. But sometimes it feel yeah, it does feel like how I don't know. Does does it feel I like, like the, I like the I like the idea of of a multifaceted relationship, I guess. And, and in certain, if, if I open up something in Bangkok, there's, it's, you know, there, there's a limitation to how multifaceted that, that relationship could be. Right. I mean, you were even talking earlier about how Don McCarthy is now on the West coast. You're in Kentucky. You barely see each other and yet you make records together all the time. You have, yeah. you, you and have it's in, it's in Chicago, you know, and it's like, that's, it takes a lot of effort to maintain friendships and and for and, and musical collaborations over distance. Yeah. Yeah. And so and and and, and that that I think that that is probably true to some extent, you know, between musician and audience. Sure. Uh, you mean you've been you've toured extensively throughout the uh, you know around the uh, like throughout the planet? I, I'd say. I mean, are there? Are you saying that you're kind of interest in seeing new places is kind of 
tapping out a little bit, or is that still? Are you still curious about that? There, there will always be the there will always be the curiosity, but I think each as each year goes by, I'm kind of more curious to revisit places. I guess hmm. I, rather than you know the novelty. I I, I like the novelty of of strengthening and deepening a re- relationship rather than the novelty of creating a new relationship. Sure. No, that, that, that totally makes because sense. Because you have to choose one or the other. You can't do both. Right. Well, I mean, you, it sounds like you, I mean, throughout your, throughout this, this career of yours, you, you kind of have done a bit of that in terms of revisiting places and, and, and old friends and all, and that sort of thing. Uh, but, yeah. but <laughs> uh, you're saying the novelty of it is, is is losing its luster. I well I, again I, I think that novelty will never lose its lust, luster but but it, but it's recognizing novelty in exploring the same thing rather than you know like it, we think that in order to be new something has to be different. Right. But actually in order to be new you know, it's the the old idea of looking at a river. You know, you don't, you never look at the same river twice. And yet some people say, well, like, I, I've seen the Ohio River, or I've seen, you know, I've seen my brother's love, or I've listened to this record. And it's, just, and it's like, really? You couldn't listen to that record again? You couldn't hear your family members say they love you again? Mm. That's kind of strange. And feel something new about it? It's... That's very yeah. It's totally true. I hadn't thought. I hadn't really considered it, but that's uh, no. That's good. That's a great analogy. I appreciate that. Um, well, as you say, it does kind of segue into this discussion about uh, Dawson City uh, festivals. Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a loose segue, but it's a segue nonetheless. Uh, I, yeah. I, I mentioned that you and Don are playing a few festivals in the coming weeks and months. Uh, Festivals have obviously become a very huge business over the past decade in particular. Can you, I'm curious about this from you in particular, because I know that uh, you're a thoughtful guy. What's your general take on playing uh, festivals? Okay. (laughs) Uh, My general take on playing festivals, and sometimes I, you know, sometimes I, there's enough things in the world that I, genuinely love that I don't think it's true but sometimes I wonder because I love things very strongly and so then when I am disturbed or don't care for things I, I think similarly I, and and there are certain trends of course like I'm not always comfortable with and I don't know you know, it's the curmudgeon the, the curmudgeonly tendency to say well why are we doing this when yesterday this was good and and you know and and opposes this um but it and it feels strange when festivals are big business to i'm to to not see a positive value in what festivals represent these days i i i'm not i don't feel like i'm happily opposed to them uh, I, because it doesn't it doesn't feel good to be but you want things to be what you like all the time so I don't want to oppose festivals but I can't say I don't understand them uh, and there's there's an example that I use in the past couple of years there's a woman that I know who has been to every Bonnaroo since since the beginning mm-hmm. and last year I think I talked to her about it and she said Oh, I just got back from Bonnaroo. It was so great. It was so much fun. I just love going there. And I, and I said, "Well, really, what you know, what what bands did you, see, what music did you see that you really liked?" And she's like, "Um, I, hmm, I don't think I saw any music." <laughs> and and I think you know, I feel like festivals are, and music audiences, you know, because of the way that the internet works and such nobody's given time to think about what's happening to the way we listen to music and the way we take in music. Um, every, you know, there's this uh, urgency just about keeping up with how things function. Um, but I feel like festivals, they remind me of 
Walmart. I mean, they are Walmart. They're um, they're a buffet oh, as opposed to ordering from the menu, so to speak. They are a buffet as opposed to or, or as opposed to even getting home cooked food. Yeah, they are they are a buffet, and buffets have always disgusted me. You know, since since I was a kid and would think, oh, a buffet is great, and you go and quickly. You feel sick, you see wasted food on your plate, and you just think, like, what was the point of that? You know, why do, why do I want three great things? I don't want three great things. I want one good thing. Uh-huh. One good thing is enough. Yeah. And festivals, like, they list these, you know, they get these huge lists of, of bands, and, you know, I don't have the capacity for, you know, I could see maybe three great sets, and that would be, like, that would be, you know, a mind-blowing, you know, year, if not decade-making day. That's what I can take in. <laughs> so I don't understand, like, why would I want to go to where 150 great bands are playing? Or 10 great bands? Why? I don't understand it. And, and, and then, you know, and, and panic about, oh, I'm missing this set. I've got to get to this set. Oh, how am I going to get to a position in this? And, and how am I going to contextualize this music into my life, which is what music is about for me? Like seeing music, listening to music is having it be a complement to my thoughts and my relationships and my experiences, and and so and I and I feel like you know festivals are they they also are like Walmart or Circuit City or these big or Target in that they they use music because people love music uh, the same way that Apple has built its you know just insanely and, and frighteningly powerful uh, uh, mass of, of money and power and influence on people's love of music. And Amazon did the same with books. It's, it's, they put these products that people love and people need and people connect to emotionally because they want money and power. Right. And they don't care about the mu- music. They don't care about the books. They don't care anything about any of that stuff. And they're not going to do anything that supports a stronger relationship between audience and musician or audience and song. They don't care about any of that. Um, they're just suckering you in, you know, that's, you know, circuit city would sell their CDs for cheap. So that people would walk in and notice the big, the great deal on a refrigerator or washing machine. That's where they make their profits. Yeah. And the same, you know, and Apple's doing the same and the festivals are doing the same thing. It's like, they don't care about the music at all. They don't care about the music at all. This is for the most part. Uh, you know, that's that's the festivals that we're talking about in general. I think the Bonnaroo's, the Coachellas, they are about creating an experience like my friend has, which is, I went there, I did that, it was great, um, hmm. but nothing about the music. Uh, but, and but, there but, are, you know, like we had we had a fan, you know, a fantastic experience at the Calgary Folk Festival, um, because it. You know, one thing that it did that's different was they were they said, and I think it's going to be like this in uh, Dawson City, and I'm not sure about in Guelph, but where they say, you know, a, a band performs and then is, you know, heavily encouraged to participate in one or more collaborative performances. Yeah. In addition yeah. to the to the stage performance. Yeah, that's going to happen. And, that's going to happen in in both examples, uh, Dawson City and Hillside. Right. And and that makes sense, you know. That all of a sudden it starts to make sense for there to be, you know, twenty twenty acts or more, you know, to even ten acts. It makes sense if there's a reason for those acts to be together. And you know, I don't necessarily think all the collaborative performances work. And sometimes it's as if you were watching, you know, people in soundproof booths on the same stage together. Like, okay, now I'm going to do my three minutes of show or my ten minutes of show. Yeah. But there were times when you would see people doing things together and it gave the audience a chance to revisit, you know, to see multiple uh, aspects of performances or songs or performers. And that's, you know, that's a different model. You know, those are different models of, of festivals than the, than the Lollapaloozas or the, you know, Lollapalooza, we did a Lollapalooza in 94 and it was really interesting. And, it was great for us because we got paid uh, like 1250 bucks to play at two in the afternoon, which meant that we could also play at night somewhere in a club or a bar. Yeah. But there was a really great moment um, 
we were playing in Rhode Island. The Lollapalooza was in Rhode Island. And there was so much traffic on the roads that one of the t- big tour buses didn't, uh, was held up and couldn't get. And Luscious Jackson, I think, there was somebody in Luscious Jackson who was dating somebody in the Breeders. And Luscious Jackson was on the side stage that we were on and the Breeders were on the main stage. And their bus, and they, so they were together on a bus, so and their bus was stuck. So the Breeders couldn't play, Luscious Jackson couldn't play. And so there was nobody on the main stage and the Boredoms were playing. Uh, the Boredoms played on the main stage first. Yeah. But Luscious, during Luscious Jackson's set, instead of doing Luscious Jackson's set, it was like a, a collaborative performance between Boredoms and Luscious, Luscious Jackson members. And the, the masses of people didn't have anywhere to go because there was nothing happening on the main stage. So they all came to the side stage and watched this, you know, awesome, powerful uh, jam session. Hmm. And it was like, that's, that's what, that's what these should be. Like, that's what, that's, if you're going to put musicians together, put musicians together. It's not, you know, yeah. So basically, was, so what I can take away from this is, because what I was going to try, what I was going to ask you is if you have such a problematic relationship with the, with these festivals, why do them? But it sounds to me like you're being really choosy and picky about the kinds of festivals you engage with. Yeah. And it's, and it is, you know, it's hard, like, it's, I, it's, it's depressing because you see, because they offer a lot of money. They offer a lot of money and musicians, you know, of course, increasingly, as, as most of us know, rely upon income from live shows as opposed to income from, you know, selling recordings. Mm-hmm. And so people, you know, so, so bands play all these festivals and, and all these bands, but I think that the festivals have this, you know, they devalue music and they dilute the, the intensity of the experience for both the musician and for the audience in such a way that it helps, you know, the, the terrible trend of, of interesting bands not staying interesting for longer than a couple of years. Right. Because this is their experience. And it's just like they end up having to do what everybody else does. Uh, as opposed to creating their own way of doing things. Um, and it's, people will say, you know, would you want to, you know, why don't you want to play even this great festival? Because Rocky Erickson and Dwight Yoakam and whoever else is going to be there. And I just think like, well, when I go, I, when I go play, I, I kind of, I'm kind of thinking about my set and, I don't think I would enjoy, I wouldn't get to enjoy Dwight Yoakam. I wouldn't get to enjoy, you know, every once in a while you get to finish a set and then see a, a great band play. Yeah. But, but there was, you know, like I also, <laughs> you sit in this common area backstage and if I'm thinking about the set that we have coming up and I see a musician that I really admire, I'm just, I get really depressed because I'm like, I would love to go talk to that person, but I can't because I'm working. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so, it. So then you also think like, well, that was my opportunity, and they saw me sitting there, and I didn't go over and say hello to them, so they think that I'm, you know, rude or standoffish, and I, and that makes me feel even worse for being in this position because <laughs> I want them to, I want them to know how much I love and respect them, and how much I would love to talk to them or, or collaborate with them or whatever. Yeah. But all they saw was somebody just like not wanting to say hello at all um, because of, you know, out of, out of stage fright, basically yeah. for the impending set. There's uh, the other weird the weird aspect I would think also from a performer's point of view playing a festival is that you're potentially playing before an audience that isn't there to see you. And, uh, you know, they're there for whoever potentially, or, or as you like your friend is just there for some kind of experiential reason rather than music. How does that impact you as a performer? It's, it's, um, I think the the thing that's really unpleasant about that is is the feeling that you know you are auditioning kind of for an audience that you don't really care about um, because they're you know people might say oh I'm going to go check you know as you would as you would at a festival I'm going to go check this set out for a little while 
and you might go check that set out for a little while. If it doesn't engage you for whatever reason, because the sound mix is bad, because it's not a song that you're into, yeah. you might start talking to your friend or smoking or drinking or dancing or throwing a Frisbee or playing a hacky sack. or <laughs> and, and the audience that is there to pay attention to that uh, act is distracted then and doesn't, you know, and, and it just creates like this weird... Um, what's, you know, what's really most rewarding at a show is it's a unified sense of, you know, energy and purpose. And so it's not necessarily even, because uh, it can, you know, it also can be a, a great experience to play for an audience that doesn't know what you do or who you are and you figure out your relationship with them, but not if they're weighing whether or not they should stand there. Um, because as we do, you know, we're in, in this society right now, if, you know, if something doesn't please us, we just change the channel. Right. And at a festival, that's what you do. You just change the channel. Um, so, you know, like I love to play, you know, on a, uh, we played on ferry boats, you know, like in New Zealand to help pay our fare, we would play on a ferry going from the North Island to the South Island. And the ferry boat people didn't know who we were, but that was like such a great time, you know, like one of my favorite performances ever because we're just playing and people can choose whether to listen or not, but, but it didn't feel like it, it helped us discover things about how songs worked, how dynamics worked, how audience interaction worked. Um, whereas at a festival, you, you kind of feel like you're like a prostitute in Amsterdam in a, in a window or something like that. Like, come on, honey, come on. And it's just like, you know, I don't really want to be that. Uh, you know, I, it's not a place for that. It's not a muscle that I want to strengthen, you know, the, the ability to provide curb appeal, um, to window shoppers. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, and again, I think that's in keeping with the idea of picking, uh, the festivals that you want to play in a in a thoughtful way, and it sounds like you do that. For sure. I mean, in general, it's like no thanks, no festivals. But but you know, there are, I you know that the Calgary experience was so amazing. Yeah. Um, well, I've been know. I've been to Dawson City uh, myself for their festival a few years ago, and uh, what they do for the workshop is a, a potluck thing, or what they have done in the past. Basically, all the bands get together. They're they're sort of assigned to play with with each other, and uh, at the last minute, and you you have very little time to prepare. And I ended up performing with people, and uh, it was great. It was so much fun. And uh, the hillside workshops are the same thing. When they're done well, it's not just people sitting around playing their songs. They're actually collaborating together and, and playing together for the first time. And uh, you know, I, I know you'll have a good time at both of those events. I am definitely looking forward to it. I've, I've wanted to visit Guelph since sometime. I think it was in New York City. I wandered into a a screening of a like a outdoors natural. It was a touring version of an outdoors natural film festival uh, that I guess happens in Guelph. Okay. Film festival does, and they put together a touring version of the film festival, and and that experience was so good that I, you know, started looking up Guelph and, and I was like, Oh my gosh, I can't wait to go there. <laughs> well, you, you, you know, you and I have spoken uh, many times now and uh, you've been on the airwaves here at Guelph. We're all very uh, excited to actually have you here in person. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. I, I always enjoy speaking with you. It's, 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 it's uh, especially on days like today, having a, having a, a collaborative conversation the, the likes of which we seem to have is, is something I, I really cherish. Well, I really appreciate that. Well, it's always a, a thrill for me to speak to you. And I always, I must say, for what it's worth, I always learn things. I always, not just about you, it's, I, I actually feel like I learn things about life, <laughs> if I might say. So I appreciate that very much. <laughs> Back at you, you bring, bring things out of it, you make the conversation happen. So. <laughs> well, once again, Don McCarthy and Bonnie Prince Billy have a new LP out on Drag City. It's called What the Brothers Sang. And it has prompted them to tour Europe and North America, including stops at the Dawson City Music Festival on July 20th and the Hillside Festival here in Guelph, July 26th to 28th. For more, for more information about all of this, please visit dragcity.com. Uh, Will, before you go, would you mind picking a song from what the brothers sang for us to hear? How about uh, Somebody Help Me? Sure. Any any particular reason why? 
Um, just when we were talking about the record earlier, I started to think about that, and and it's it's a song that I you know I was thinking about. It was one of those songs where Dawn's, uh, you know, I was I was anticipating um, hearing uh, Dawn hit that hit that vocal because the voc the vocals. The, the melody is so incredible. It's um, in the first verse, pr- particularly that she takes it, where she's like, "When I was just a little girl, about seven, you know, I just, yeah. I couldn't wait to hear Dawn sing that, uh, sing that line. And and another cool thing about that song is, it was a song that was recorded before the Everly's recorded it. The Spencer Davis group recorded it. Oh. And uh, at one point, I was talking to Emmett Kelly about. Stuff, and I said, oh, yeah, it turns out, or I was, I was talking to someone else, and Emmett was sitting there, and I said, oh, this was a Spencer Davis song, Spencer Davis group song, and uh, Emmett said, uh, he's like, I didn't know that was a Spencer Davis group song. It's like, my mom was in the Spencer Davis group. Wow. Yeah. This is another long line. Every time I speak to you, there's some something about coincidence comes up and, and fate maybe. And yeah, that's very strange the, how connected you are yeah. to all that stuff. It's very odd. Uh, well, here it is. So this is uh, Don McCarthy and Bonnie Prince Billy with somebody help me from what the brothers sang. Will, always a pleasure. Thanks again. Thank you, Chavish. Until next time. Somebody help me. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, thanks again for checking out Creative Control with Vish Khanna. You can email me about the show at creativecontrol933 at gmail.com. That's creative with a K, control with a K, 933 at gmail.com. You can also follow our Twitter at Vish Creative, V-I-S-H-K-R-E-A-T-I-V-E. And you can also like our Facebook page. A version of this show airs on CFRU in Guelph every Wednesday at noon Eastern. And you can listen to that online at CFRU.ca or if you're in the KW region at 93.3 FM in Guelph. You can also sign up for the weekly mailing list for the podcast and the, and the show at vishkana.com and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. I believe that is everything I wanted to tell you. Thank you once again. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.